Take that! Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is an original episode uh, looking at the fallacy exaggerated conflict. Uh, so one of the main topics we're going to look at is some stuff around climate change. Um, also, uh, some of the audio quality is not quite up to snuff with some of this original episode. Um, didn't have some of the same equipment back then that I do have now. Uh, but, you know, it's about the content really, isn't it? Yeah, okay, I know it's really actually about the audio quality, so apologies. Uh, anyway, enjoy. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined with my father, Jeff Clark. G'day, Dad. How you doing? Hi, Theo. Good, thanks. And in uh, the podcast, we're going to look at exaggerated conflict uh, today, and... As usual, um, we will begin with a reading from the book. Exaggerated conflict, the other terms we use for that are inflated conflict and exaggerated dispute. And the description we give, the advocate expresses a view that because there is a dispute between experts in a domain of knowledge, the entire field of scholarship or at least a specific issue in dispute, should be rejected. Example. Graham Flatliner is eating with gusto his second bacon and egg burger of the day. His concerned workmate, Ed Fuddy, is witnessing his consumption. Ed is finally moved to remark. I don't understand how he can eat so much of that. I feel ill just imagining the way the cholesterol is coating your arteries. If you keep eating like that, your high level of cholesterol means you will get heart disease and keel over before you reach 50. Graham responds, That's not true. I was reading about a doctor in Sweden who's an expert in heart disease. He recently completed a study in which he found no link between dietary cholesterol and heart disease, so high cholesterol won't give me heart problems. The so-called experts are always changing their minds, and they can't even agree amongst themselves. Next year, the Heart Foundation will probably recommend deep-fried pork crackling. Comment on the example. Outright rejection of a field of knowledge just because there is some level of dispute in the field is fallacious. After all, any field of inquiry advances through a degree of dispute and debate. At times, professional disagreement, even at the margins, can lead to rivalry and hostility. When such disagreements become public, non-specialists may be dismissive of the whole field. This is not an appropriate position for the seeker after truth. A critical thinker does not dismiss anything out of hand. He or she examines an issue and makes judgments consistent with the revealed facts. In the present example, and if Ed were a seeker after truth, he might ask Graham for details of the Swedish research paper. In the meantime, he could point out to Graham that it is the weight of evidence that matters when individuals are trying to make healthy lifestyle choices. He could explicitly reject Graham's position by pointing out that Graham is exaggerating the degree of uncertainty in research on the role of dietary cholesterol and heart disease. The reasonable person will not regard uncertainty in any field of inquiry as a problem. Uncertainty is far better than dogmatism or unjustified certainty. However, Lack of absolute consensus does not mean that, inverted commas, anything goes. Another fallacy we examine, false dichotomy, may at times be difficult 
to distinguish from exaggerated conflict. The key feature of exaggerated conflict is the tendency of an advocate to dismiss the field of inquiry because of a false claim that the experts are in complete disagreement. If the experts are in complete disagreement, then it is appropriate to reserve judgment about the issue or to make a provisional decision one way or the other, while remaining open-minded and ready to change a decision as more information emerges. Note that sitting on the fence on an issue pending more information is a perfectly respectable position for a seeker after truth to take. And uh, we've got a little an example of a point of uh, an example of exaggerated conflict, and there are some kind of areas that I think are where it tends to happen a lot. What the obvious one we use in the book there is any of those kind of health issues. So on on those kind of chatty lifestyle morning type programs, those soft news programs, they always whenever a new kind of study comes out, they'll uh, talk about it, and then they'll get the the local commentary they always get on those shows to come on and say oh you know the scientists are always changing their mind great now we can eat lots eat as much chocolate as we like and then next year oh no we can't have chocolate or it's coffee or it's tea or whatever and so a lot of that's just a part of the way they do news but they try and give this kind of idea that whenever there's any kind of conflicting evidence then oh the whole field is just rubbish just throw it away just ignore it and that's simply not a case. Obviously, climate change is, an, is one of probably the main one now. Anything that's highly politicised, you always get this fallacy tends to come out uh, because that's a way of kind of muddying the waters. Um, and evolution in the in the US, I imagine, not really too many other places, but certainly in the United States, uh, they try and pick out any little um, the kind of ID creationist type people try and pick out any little paper that someone publishes with that has one little thing, oh, I don't understand what's going on here. They go, ah, evolution doesn't work because they don't understand this. So it's got the appeal to ignorance there as well. But that's just the the kind of common, anything that's very politi- politicised as well, um, you can keep your eyes peeled for um, the exaggerated conflict fallacy. Okay, so we've got a clip here. Uh, it's a pretty classic example where, you know, some scientist comes out and, and says, oh, they disagree with the, the inverted commas consensus, which is not really a word I like because I don't think science works by consensus either. But um, it, this is the quick example, and we can talk about the examples uh, specifically after we have a listen to it now. <laughs> Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says he and many other scientists do not see global warming as a developing catastrophe and that there is no smoking gun proving that human activity is to blame for the warming that does occur. John Christie is the director of the Earth System Science Center at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. He and thousands of others on the UN panel share half the Nobel Prize, also awarded to Al Gore. But he says he cringes when he hears 100-year weather forecasts when it is incredibly difficult to accurately predict the weather five days from now. He writes in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Mother Nature simply operates at a level of complexity that is at this point beyond the mastery of mere mortals, such as scientists, and the tools available to us. He points out that a recent CNN report on climate change made much of the shrinking Arctic sea ice cover, but did not mention that winter sea ice around Antarctica set a record maximum, maximum last month.
Okay, so, yeah, I mean, the, technically no one actually then went and said, oh, I'll throw away the entire field of knowledge, but that's just an example of what happens is people um, come out and they, you know, say something that's against the... Um, that appears that the, the field of not the the entire field is in doubt because of you know these other little points they've made, um, or you know one particular the maverick scientist comes out and says this, but uh, you know that's not necessarily the case. Um, it could be, and you always keep your mind open to it. But when things are um, extremely politicised as well, then you've got to be aware that there are other agendas running besides just pure science, and so that that's and that's on both sides of the the agenda too, because I think the um, the the climate change people often do themselves a disservice by exaggerating the possible effects to try and get action too. And so I think any time you kind of um, exaggerate anything on either side, then you, you're actually not going to help in the long run because it muddies the water even further. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the other yeah. thing there, if I can mention too uh, about this, is um, the the unfortunate thing for me is that it was championed by Al Gore. Yep. Um, <laughs> and also the celebrities jumped on the bandwagon. And I have a natural aversion to, to Al Gore, uh, and also have a natural aversion to celebrities generally. And I, I've developed an, an aversion to Tim Flannery. He, he wrote an excellent book called The Future Eaters, which I think was a, a very good piece of work. But since then he sort of got on the celebrity thing in the speaker circuit and the $10,000 um, That's know, pretty cheap. Speaker, speaker fees and that kind of stuff. And so for me, it's, it, it's partly a problem with the kinds of personalities that are getting behind it. Um, so I, I, I reserve my judgment, but I, I do accept, actually, you're the most persuasive person I know on this when you talk about the precautionary principle. So I, I've, I think that's the sensible position yeah. to take on this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's when you mentioned that that I thought, well, at least I can take a position on it without knowing mm. all the facts, without all the facts yeah, being we'll, in, we'll despite come, we'll our come back to more about global warming in a second because I, I just want to get look specifically at the, um, actual, some of the, the things in that clip. And so, yeah, um, yeah. the, the first point is they, they break it down to, into, right at the beginning of the clip into two things. There's A, there's, um, is it actually, uh, um, anthropogenic or not, so i.e. human-induced, or how much of it is, you know, human-forced climate change, um, and what are the potential effects of that. Um, and so there, as far as I'm concerned, there's pretty much no doubt now in terms of the overall weight of evidence that humans are having an effect on the climate. It just, It's also just... It, seems to me to be incredulous to think we couldn't be. I mean, I know the Earth is a massive system, but, you know, we are having a significant effect on the land of the Earth and the population we have and the, the different, um, you know, the fuels we're burning and so on. So to, for us to not have an, any effect would be very strange. Now, that's different to... Yeah, well... <laughs> but you ride a bike and you walk everywhere. <laughs> but, um, but I don't know, you have a lot of hot, hot gas coming out of you. Um, but... The the main the main thing is there you know it seems to me it's it's got to be some kind of effect now how much that effect is occurring and then what are the potential long term effects of it that's another a different issue then that's where you're getting far more speculative but the other point in that clip he says well there's no smoking gun and 
that bothers me that a scientist could say there should be some kind of smoking gun in any kind of um, complex field of science. It just doesn't work that way. You don't get smoking guns. There, there's some fields of science where that does happen, where, you know, say general relativity, when uh, they measure the bending of light around um, from, a solar, from a solar eclipse, then, then you go, okay, you know, verified. But you don't get smoking guns. Trying to, you know, where's a smoking gun for evolution? It doesn't happen. You get a, a, you get multiple lines of evidence pointing in one direction. So that's really um, was an odd thing for a scientist to say. I think for maybe just a bit of rhetoric. But but I, to, to, if you know anything about science, one thing you know is you don't get smoking guns. Um, the other thing he said was, oh, you know, predicting the weather a hundred years from now when you can't do it in five days from now. Well. Again, that, that's just basically a false analogy. It's an error of scale. Where it's like saying that um, if you built a little uh, a little aluminium um, tower uh, to model the World Trade Center falling, it's like, well, no, on different scales they work completely differently. So I don't know enough about meteorology and, and those kind of things, but I do know that different scales that you don't apply the same principles because of the different um sizes you're dealing with so nature acts in a different way on different scales so i mean that's just a completely an easy little straw man false analogy that's being thrown up there and then the last thing he said was that um you know it's too complex for us to be able to to understand and that's another bizarre thing to say it's too complex in principle and complex in practice are, are completely different things and so if you're trying to study a complex system yeah well of course you build models and those models over time start getting better and better but you start from somewhere and you learn as you go along um to make uh hasty decisions on those models is a bad idea but i mean climate change science is not in its infancy anymore people have been working on it for a long time there's a lot of people working on it so to say that it's just you know it's too complex in principle is a bizarre thing for someone who's job that is is to do to say um to, to me uh, the analogy i can make it similar say to something like brain science neuroscience and yeah it's massively complex but we're making progress and we're we're learning a lot about how the brain works and we're able to make predictions that you're able to test um now i i, I don't disagree with anything you're saying there but i i still am smarting a bit uh, with a dismissive comment you made a bit uh, a while ago when i said i, I don't contribute to global warming, and I'd just like to explain myself there, if you right. don't mind, because you you did say I, I felt you weren't sincere in in agreeing with me because you were saying you know that I I didn't produce gases and that kind of thing. But the the thing I actually do, and this is, I I do this faithfully, and I think I'm well ahead of the game in this. I sequester carbon at least to the extent I produce carbon, so. I, I will not recycle paper. Yeah, I know. I know. I I'm put very it in proud the garbage bin that. so it, so it goes to landfill. I thought you buried so, it in the front yard. Well, <laughs> I occasionally take a ream of fresh paper from from a store because mm. uh, I can afford it, and I bury it in the backyard. And so what I'm doing is I'm creating a demand for plantation timber to mm. produce the paper. Yeah, and the paper that is not Recycled, it actually goes into landfill, and that paper captures captures carbon. the carbon. Exactly right. Yeah, spot on. And I've calculated exactly that I can afford to get a V8 um, <laughs> four-wheel drive because of my uh, carbon capture. Well, I want to take and a trip I, overseas, I so at my I've office I've been getting all the reams of paper that are coming in, and I've just yeah. been burying them out the back before anyone uses them. 
Well, look, um, we're, we're so far ahead of the game. I know. Look, probably people, if people found out about that, you'd get in trouble, I'm sure, because people that are not yet yeah. to that point. They don't understand. But when I see a fresh ream of paper, I have this tremendous urge to bury it. To bury it, yeah. To yeah. capture all the carbon in that paper. Because the and thing is, I wouldn't have to do it if I knew trees. that they would recycle. They would they would bury the paper after they've used it, you know. But they put these recycling bins in our um, office, so people are all putting their paper in that. Yeah, and it gets used and again. It gets and, used and, again. The idiots, and, and eventually and, that carbon will get released. If you bury it, there's no chance of it being released. They have to grow trees. That's if you right. bury it, they have to they grow, have to grow trees. trees. Yeah, they have to sequester carbon. So it, it's demand led, and it must work. It's it's yeah. not. Not a matter of policy. If if everyone simply buries a ream of fresh paper every week, once a week, it'll yep. create enormous demand for plantation timber. We're visionaries. And capture an enormous amount of carbon. That Sorry, I, I got off on a bit of a rant there, but it's a, it's something that's very dear to my heart. No, um, but yeah, look, let's just um, finish up the bit about uh, the, what we're actually meant to be talking about, which is exaggerated conflict, because um, then I've actually got a little bit of a discussion I had with. Um, uh, my close friend Ben, uh, who's actually in the um, acknowledgements to the book, um, actually about this issue. But before we move on to that, just one more point about how science proceeds in general. I think we did talk about this in a, in a previous podcast, maybe the one on um, falsification. But when you the the I don't like really like the word consensus because consensus kind of implies that some kind of vote and the scientists vote on on what they believe or what they don't believe. You do end up getting consensus in particular fields because the weight of the evidence leads people to believe that. Um, but you know, it can be overthrown if there's more evidence to another point, and I think that's what we said in in the um, in the the section we just read out there was that you've got to go with what the weight of the evidence says. Now we can't all examine that evidence ourselves so then sometimes you do have to look at particular people uh who you know have been a good source of news for you in the the past or the you know other things they've talked about so there might be for example one of the reasons why i've definitely moved over to the you know i was kind of holding out a bit like you but people like michael Shermer and people like that who were um global warming skeptics um have eventually now started to change their mind and so you know, when you start getting people like that um, starting to change their mind, then I think, okay, well, there's more evidence like that. I've also, you know, from conversations I've had with someone like Ben, who's who works in um, in water management um, in government, so he gets to you know spends a lot of his time actually doing research and looking at this stuff. So when when you get to know people like that, that's when you start thinking, okay, maybe the the weight of evidence is in one particular direction. But so what I'll do now is I'll I'll play the interview with Ben, um, then we'll come back and we'll have a one last general discussion as we we're talking about about things like the precautionary principle and stuff like that. Too. So I'm here having a coffee with my mate, uh, my good mate Benno, who uh, is actually in the acknowledgement of the book Humbug, uh, as being one of my uh, sources of honing my critical thinking skills. Um, G'day Ben, how are you going? I'm good. And we're just having a coffee. I thought I'd uh, have a chat with Ben about some specific things. and The power of op-ed. Yeah. Fishing for uh, fueling THC. Yep. So, and that, that's emerged in the recycling water issue here in Queensland. And so has the, the actual fluoridation. Thing. Yep. So you have... 
op-ed writers of different political persuasions each um, seeking out a, an expert who will push their own agenda. particular agenda. And to give a bit of background context now, since uh, Ben and I, Ben works in government, won't name names or anything like that, and I also work in government now, you know, formerly a teacher, but I'm in that kind of area now. And it's really interesting when you're on the inside and so you kind of know what is actually going on and then looking at the pontificating that goes on the newspaper and the ill-informed comment from the commentariat, so all of the, yeah. the editor, and then even worse, of course, the commentators on the on the editorials and the blogs and so on. They're just shockingly ignorant. And and, and I don't mind people being ignorant. It's when they're unaware of their own ignorance that bothers me. Yeah. I think there's, a, there's sort of two reasons for this issue, I think. The, uh, the springerization of the media. Yeah. It's like the op-ed column is like the cockroaches of the media. They sort of, uh, after the, uh, the nuclear blast of the uh, internet is destroying, slowly destroying uh, traditional media. The <laughs> All that's left is the op-ed writers and the blog writers. Yeah, what, what's um, in your area? What do you think the most common kind of error in reasoning that you come across might be? I don't know. That's an interesting question, Theo, because uh, I've, got to be, I've got to be careful what I say here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about your colleagues. Yeah. I'm talking about in general. In general. In, that could be conversations with people in the pub about, yeah. about what you do. Okay. It's, um, it's interesting working in public policy because there's always this trade-off between sort of uh, scientific reality yeah. and um, political necessity. And... What necessarily should be done isn't something that uh, is politically, politically palatable. Yeah. So I, I think it's one of the one of the challenges of a uh, working democracy, a yeah. working democratic system, is that you always have the tension between the uh, the will of the masses versus the sort of the hard, the or not just hard scientific reality, sometimes the hard economic reality. Yeah. And um, so. It's uh, the horse trading and uh, the trade-off between yeah. that sort of thing. And that's not really an error. That's probably just more a political reality. Yeah, I think maybe the, the false sense of certainty. It's like the in, invincible ignorance. It's like uh, yeah. some, some people are so sure of their position. Mm. That, uh, it doesn't matter what evidence you give them, what uh, what recommendations you think, they still make what what you think is the wrong. Yeah. Uh, if I yeah, if I could if I could engender in people one. Thing. It wouldn't be any of the fallacies that talk about. It would actually be the being prepared to doubt yourself yeah. and being prepared to sit on the fence and say, well, I don't know. I don't have enough evidence yeah. to make that. And uh, a news report comes out about anything yeah. and people go, oh, just jump on it straight away. And you know, you think, well, actually, you, you really shouldn't be making that decision. You shouldn't know. But um, again, it's the uh, pressures of running a, uh, a government are sometimes such that you can't always make Oh, it's not just the government and in just about every aspect of life. You're always going to be forced to make decisions without full information. So, yeah. I mean, uh, the global warming issue is a classical example of that. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, the, uh, the scientific evidence is a, it's almost at the point where it's irrefutable now. Yeah. And, uh, but you still have people pushing certain agendas. And uh, uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. The evidence for, for global warming has been lost. Anthropogenic yeah. greenhouse yeah. warming yeah. is enormous yeah. and varied and from multi-disciplines yeah. and multiple lines of evidence. It's not about a uh, consensus, it's just that the vast bulk of the evidence is 
saying that this is really yeah. happening and it's going to be a problem. It's pointing in particular yeah. direction. Yeah. On the other hand, there's also a small amount of evidence that's saying it's not, it's not happening. So what you do is you look at the, uh, on the balance of evidence, you say that this is happening. I think it's far by, by an, 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 an apt analogy to say yeah. evolution or the Big yeah. Bang or whatever. You, yeah. can, you can find little minor things here and there that you, you don't understand yet or just point it up the other way. But the overwhelming lines yeah. of evidence, the preponderance of evidence yeah. points in one So way. I suppose every time I get a word consensus, it sets my teeth on it. Yeah. Because it's not a consensus. No one science doesn't work yeah. by consensus. They didn't so, vote on yeah, this. Yeah, no. It's like the, the vast bulk of the, and this is the absolute vast bulk of evidence, is in the affirmative in this case. Yeah. And there's a minuscule amount of evidence that isn't. And most of that evidence, when it's examined closely, disappears anyway. I mean, uh, well, I can uh, think of a good a, example of that is the uh, the solar intensity yep, one. Yep, yep, yep. And there's also that's the uh, example. That's exactly what happened, yeah. and then that got got destroyed. That the, uh, paper. Yeah, and the uh, the, well, the global warming on Mars is another yes, one. Yes, right. Yes. And uh, NASA did their research, and they found that the extensive amount of uh, uh, hurricane activity on Mars had um, uncovered all this black rock, mm. which is absorbing solar energy. Yeah. And so. And but this, this is not necessarily a negative thing. I mean, it's the way science works. Yeah. And I think that's the number one thing people misunderstand is that science is not a dictatorship. No. It's like uh, when new evidence comes, it's like we should be changing our minds. Yeah, if I was going to say what the biggest misconception yeah. of science is in the general public, it is the whole a paper gets put out yeah. and some people yeah. are healthy and anything yeah. like that, and they go, oh, scientists say this now, but no, they like scientists. This scientists. Yeah, it's like this particular yeah. scientist put out a paper there's no doubt says at the end of it, the evidence points with this however, yeah. and then the however goes along to point out more yeah. research should be done, i.e. Yeah. give me some more money, and so on. This is a limitation of that, that does not get recorded. Yeah. And then it's a body of evidence built up over yeah. time that points to a particular record. It's not one paper, yeah. it never has been and never will be. Occasionally you get these sort of massive breakthrough paper like Einstein's relativity, yeah. but even then that wasn't accepted straight away. All the other lines of evidence came in to back it up. But that was the paper where you point at it and you go, bang, that guy's got it, he nailed it. But that paper itself was not the end. That paper was the beginning of the whole research program that went on. And so, look, so people don't understand that about science. And, and the other thing I was going to say about the global warming cost of deniers is that, that what they do is they try and find one little thing and go, oh, well, if you can't tell me that, the whole thing's rubbish. So it's this kind of um, exaggerated conflict. Well, it's called the exaggerated conflict. And so... Um, the example of the exaggerated conflict I think of is actually a uh, uh, an argument I got in with on a on a website, um, and it was with a guy that had been saying that none of the climate models took into account. I think it was I think he was actually saying none of the climate models took into account water evaporation, which is crap anyway, um, and and then saying, oh, if you don't do that, you haven't proved anything. And, and, and you know, it's like this, even if that was true, which I doubt. Irrelevant. Well, it's not irrelevant, but it's just it, that is not. You can't dismiss the entire field of knowledge based on one little thing like that. You know. Oh, like, uh, you know, the ideas. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what they, yeah. Well, no. That, okay, that is exactly the same. Yeah. The ideas go. Oh well, there's this irreducibly complex. Yeah. Uh, Where's the immediate form? Um, yeah. Well, what's the what is the stupid um flagella of the, the bacterial flagella? Yeah. Even though, of course, now they have special on how it works. But, but now they've got two. Yeah, and they, uh, oh, well, all of evolution then. Oh, it's basically, it's crap. Well, they, what they try and do is they try and sow the seed of doubt and, you know, the, and, and then by doing that, try and put the whole thing in dispute. But, yeah, all right. Well, thanks for that, Benno. All right, Good okay. to catch up again. Yeah.
So uh, one one thing I talked about there with Ben and, and also mentioned with you before is not just the idea of the precautionary principle because you, there's the argument that, well, hang on, you, you can't be taking the precautionary principle if you don't know the effect of what you're doing either way because you, we might say, okay, well, let's um, uh, stop you know, producing carbon dioxide and then we might have an unintended consequence either way. So you still need evidence to what you're going to do is going to be better as well. But I think... There's a, an unanswerable argument, as far as I can tell, for moving away from fossil fuels, is which is you're not going to use carbon anymore, uh, so that's great for the climate, you know, from what the evidence suggests. But moreover, you're studying completely new um, industries, completely new economy. And so when you know, we're trying to always go for this economic growth, and so a new ways to produce goods and services and make money, to me, says, hey, it's a new, whole new economy. Moreover, given we're buying most of our um, fossil fuels, our oil anyway, from the Middle East, from you know ethically suspect countries, to not be giving them money to me, you know, okay, there could be unintended consequences there too, but... You know, to me, it just says, let's get smart, let's use fuel efficiently, let's start a new economy. I, I can't see an argument against that at all. I, I don't disagree with you on that point, uh, Theo, but um, for my own part, I, I've, I've got a niche for myself, leaving aside the satirising um, carbon sequestering through burying paper and so on. I, I I have a niche for myself. Ha, hang on, can I just stop you there? Yeah. Sorry, you're saying you've been, that's, you, you don't seriously do that. Oh, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, oh, I do. good, because bloody hell, because I've been doing it at work. I didn't realise, I thought it didn't come as a joke. No, no, I, I, I thought I'd say that just in case um, uh, I get in trouble for doing it. Oh, yeah, sorry. And well, I'm, I'm muddying the water. Too. I'm muddying the water. Yes, mine's satirical too. But but the niche I, uh, I take is I I loathe hypocrisy from um, yeah, yeah. the people who warn us about global warming. So I'm not saying they're wrong in terms of the issue of global warming. But when you but have a worldwide um, message, yeah. set of concerts, concerts designed to raise awareness of global warming and the keynote speaker flies from one continent to another... In well, a, he was going to, but he didn't it, because of the out, uproar yeah, that got but, caused. But he was intended to... I, yeah. I, I loathe hypocrisy, and I, I know you want to look at um, the interesting example later on of uh, the housing... Arrangements for George Bush and uh, and Al Gore, but uh, you, you can. The, I, I I just put people I know personally who are, um, you know, buying carbon offsets and, and so, or say that we ought to buy carbon offsets and so on, uh, or other people ought to buy carbon off- offsets who don't actually do it themselves and who own a four a six cylinder car. And think nothing of driving um, from Canberra to uh, to Nowra to have a cup of coffee on a Sunday. Yeah, or um, just down just down down the local shops every day, just instead of walking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it it what 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 I tend to do in my I, I leave the issue alone of whether it is in is a fact or not, um, but I'm inclined to think it is. But I, I use a precautionary principle, but what what particularly exercises me uh, and gets me into discussions and often fruitful discussions is is the hypocrisy of so many people who are advocate, advocates for doing something about global warming and and things like turning off the lights for one day and that kind of stuff to to raise awareness and and you ask people the question well who who is now not not aware of global warming uh, so it's it's hypocrisy like 
Tim Flannery, who's a well-known Australian and internationally now, uh, travelling down the, the the Darling River and the Murray the Murray River in a in a in a powerboat to talk about environmental issues. They would have travelled down with a film crew uh, in a larger boat and so on, using fossil fuel. And there's not a mention of it. There's not even sort of a an apology and saying that on balance it's it's good to raise it's better to raise awareness. But we we know we in a sense we're being hypocrites. Um, they could have paddled down in a canoe, for example. Um, it would have been a more interesting program. But um, it, it's really the hypocrisy that exercises me and gets, yeah. gets me... Well, I, I'm, I, I half agree with you, and what I think is that I do think there is some value in awareness raising, not for individuals, but to put pressure on governments and big organisations to do something. Um, but I can't stand the, the same people. So I'm all for it in that sense, but then... Say, for example, the Earth, how we turn the lights off. And as a teacher, you know, I said to the kids at school, you know, who did that? And and I said, I didn't do it. And, you know, some of them are outraged. And I said, oh, yeah, well, how would you get to school the next day? You get driven? And they said, yeah. And I said, oh, well, I get the train every day and I ride a bike to the train station. So it didn't bother me to have to turn my lights off for an hour. Yeah. You know, and, and, and one of the kids actually sheepishly said, yeah, the next day I got up and I'd left my bedroom light on for two hours in the morning. And my mum said, you just turn your lights off. And then you've left your light on for two hours. And I said, exactly, that's the point. Um, so I am for the awareness raising in terms of it does put pressure on governments and so on. And it does move the general zeitgeist, um, you know, along in a particular direction. The other thing I find the problem with it is, is what they should be saying is, well, let's not go for, say, so much the reducing stuff in terms of just living less of a life. What they should be trying to promote is, is technological solutions. Because I'm so hardcore in, you know, science and tech. I just love it. I think there is going to be technological solutions and a lot of those technological solutions will be using energy more efficiently and more cleverly. I mean, and it's just obvious, You just for money saving, again, if you can have a car that's more efficient in fuel, you save money. So that's the whole economic aspect to it as well. So I think that that's what I, you know, as a, as a person who doesn't want to um, really cons- restrict my life, I, I'll, I get the train and walk and stuff because it keeps me fit as well. Um, but... You know, I, I think people should be able to travel overseas and do all those kinds of things, but they should be therefore pushing technological solutions and promoting new technology and trying to get investment into that because, you know, again, purely from a self, self-interested self money-making solution, I don't see how anyone can come up with an argument against that. But it is that warm in a glow kind of political, oh, I'm holier than thou because I do this kind of sanctimony that just, you, you know, you just got to call them and say, no, you're a complete hypocrite. Well, the, the, um, best, the best treatment of that was South Park episode involving the smug yeah. alert. <laughs> so if, if any of you haven't come across that episode and you can get it off the web or somewhere else. Schadenfreude. The guilty pleasures of humbug. My favourite bit of all-time hypocrisy, which I was so happy that it was verified as true, is, you know, you get those hoax, e- those emails that come around, you know, I always go onto Snopes.com or um, Urban Legends and check to see whether it's true or not, and, you know, 99 yeah. times out of 100, they are not true, they're fake emails, you know, they put lead in lipstick or whatever, um, and so this is the my favourite bit uh, of Schadenfreude, which is um, in terms of uh, the global warming, and... You got this email. I'm sure hopefully most of our listeners have seen it. I'll, I'll put a link to it. But it says, look over the descriptions of the following two houses and see if you can tell which belongs to an environmentalist. House one. 
A 20-room mansion not including eight bathrooms heated by natural gas and add-on add on a pool and a pool house and a separate guest house all heated by gas. In one month alone, this mansion consumes more energy than the average American household in an entire year. The average bill of elect- for electricity and natural gas runs over uh, $2,400 per month. In natural gas alone, uh, this property consumes more than 20 times the national average for an American home. This house is not in a northern or midwestern snow belt either. It's in the south. House number two, designed by an architecture professor at a leading national university, this house incorporates every green feature current home construction can provide. The house contains only 4,000 square feet, uh, which is four bedrooms, and is nestled on arid high prairie in the American southwest. A central closet in the house holds a geothermal heat pump drawing groundwater through the pipe sunk 300 feet into the ground. The water, usually 67 degrees Fahrenheit, heats the house in winter and cools it in summer. The system uses no fossil fuels such as oil or natural gas and consumes 25% of the electricity required for a conventional heating cooling system. Rainwater from the roof is collected and funneled to a 25,000-gallon underground system. Wastewater from the showers, sink and toilets goes into the underground purifying tanks and then into the system. The collected water then irrigates the land surrounding the house. Flowers and shrubs native to the area blend the property into the surrounding rural landscape. House number one is outside of Nashville, Tennessee, is the abode of that renowned environmentalist and filmmaker Al Gore. House number two is the model of an eco-friendly house, is on a ranch near Crawford, Texas, also known as the Texas White House. It is a private residence of the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Now, I just assumed that was fake. Um, but then went there and, and basically it's been verified by our Snopes. Um, so, uh, you know, there's some slight um, things that aren't accurate about it, but overall it's pretty much uh, um, completely accurate. So, you know, that kind of bizarre hypocrisy. Um, you know, there's that classic picture of Al Gore, these three huge uh, desktop monitors, you know, working on a, on a computer. It's just uh, just bizarre. It's not saying he can't fly around and promote stuff, but, you know, his own house isn't a state-of-the-art environmental house. He's got millions and millions of dollars, as if that wouldn't be one of the first things you'd do, is either build or buy a really environmentally friendly house. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it'd be so easy to be an exemplar as well as a spruiker. When you've got money, especially, like, it's yeah, so easy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, for the rest of us, it's hard. Uh, at the moment, you know, non-green energy is cheaper than green energy, so I'm still going to have to keep doing that. just can't afford it. Um, if I could afford it, I would, but I can't. Al Gore can, so it's just completely absurd. I, you know, and it's that level of hypocrisy that um, really does not help the cause that they're trying to promote. Yeah. All right. Okay, Theo. Yep. Um, yeah. So that was uh, exaggerated conflict, um, and then rants about global warming. So if you just wanted to hear the exaggerated conflict and you listen the whole way through, sorry. Uh, but yeah, and you know. One of the main things with the exaggerated conflict one is you've got tend to go with the on balance weight of evidence. Um and one of the ways to do that, and dare I say it, I might get um you know, get in trouble for this, but Wikipedia is if the science stuff is actually pretty good. Um there's a lot of people going on the editing and if you look at any of the discussion and talk pages for the Wikipedia articles, you can kind of get a gist of whether a um a particular article is uh, balanced, whether it's well referenced and researched. Um, so if you just read it on the surface, yeah, you can get in trouble. But if you look into the Wikipedia article a bit more on some fairly, you know, common science topic, there'll be you know hundreds of people have edited it. 
they will throw out um, bad information. They'll throw out unreferenced information. You can go look at the arguments they have on the talk pages to see what people have, have said about it. Um, and so it's actually a pretty reliable source for those kinds of things. Um, so that's a good, uh, certainly a good starting point if you're looking into any kind of issue that seems to be have a lot of political conflict around it. That's a reasonably good place certainly to start um, to try and you know make an unbalanced judgment as to what you think about it. And of course, feel free to sit on the fence and say I don't know. You know, that's one of the most important things for people to be able to do is simply say I don't know. Yes, I, I, I I'm glad you added that there because that's that's something that I often do, and I regard it as a positive thing. Um, because to claim more certainty than you can actually, you know, that, that, than, than your reading allows you to do is, is, is a delusion. So it's, um, in, in our society, we tend to, um, uh, for example, a politician can't say they don't know. Yeah. Uh, they'd yeah, be out of office yeah. immediately, but they should be allowed to. Of course, um, and that, change that, their minds. And change their minds. And it, 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 this society would be much healthier if, Politicians could actually change their minds yeah, they do without being castigated, like, uh, and, and could thing. say they don't know, um, yeah. and that's very, very would be very refreshing if that were possible. Well, that's one of the biggest problems with with science in the media is because scientists that's what the real scientists do. They say, you know, we're uncertain this much. They give their level of uncertainty, and people don't like uncertainty in their lives. They want to know for sure, and. When you read people's opinions about things, it's just straight. They're certain this is true, this is true because of you know their little one experience and that's it. And just be able to say, well, actually, I don't have enough information to make any kind of informed judgment on that, so I'm just going to say I don't know. And yeah. that's a challenge for a lot of people. So feel free, people. Say I don't know. Say it loud. Say it proud. Socrates, after all, was the first person to say that. And what, do you think you're better than Socrates? I don't think so. All right, I'll leave it there. So that was the original episode on Exaggerated Conflict. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new episode. See you then.